Hello, everybody. Welcome into the Six Feet 60 Seconds podcast. This is officially our very first episode. I'm your host, Coley Harvey, and I'm excited to be here for the next 14 minutes, giving you a little insight into a man I'm sure very few of you are familiar with. I must admit, I'd heard the name Joe Lillard before, but beyond the fact that he was one of the earliest African Americans to play in the National Football League, I didn't know much else about him. Today, you and I will both get to meet him a little better. This is the Six Feet, 60 Seconds Podcast, Episode 1, The Joe Lillard Story. Joseph Johnny Lillard, Jr. was born June 15, 1905 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. By the time he was 10 years old, however, Lillard would leave the Sooner State. From what I've discovered, his parents both died when he was a young boy, forcing him and his sister to move to Mason City, Iowa, where they were adopted by a woman named Mrs. Walter White. Lillard's stay with her was brief. By the time he was high school-aged, he lived with relatives Horace and Herbert Spencer, a pair of brothers who owned a sidewalk paving company in Mason City. A very gifted athlete, Lillard was twice named to Iowa's All-State basketball team and twice named to Iowa's All-State football team. In one 1923 game, he had a 90-yard touchdown run, and in a game the next season, he took back a 100-yard punt return for a touchdown. If you think punt return TDs are rare today, they were even rarer back in those days. Lillard also was an Iowa State champion in a slew of track and field events. Get this, he was the champ in the high jump, long jump, shot put, discus throw, and the 4x4 relay. He also pitched at the time for a City League baseball team that, too, won a championship. Strong, fast, and athletic, a 21-year-old Lillard was destined for greatness when he graduated from Mason City High School, part of its class of 1927. When Lillard was unable to afford going straight to the University of Iowa, he started working a number of jobs in the Midwest. He even played guard for the Savoy Big Five, the Chicago-based predecessors of the Harlem Globetrotters. It's unclear exactly when he played for this team, a team that split up and headed for Upper Manhattan by 1928. From what I've gathered, across the next year or two, Lillard made a connection with Clarence Doc Spears, the man who was the head football coach at the University of Minnesota in the late 1920s. By 1930, Spears left to take over the Oregon head coaching job. Coming along with him, a young man who would become a prized recruit, Joe Lillard. Now, prior to reporting to Eugene, Oregon, Lillard, in an effort to make ends meet, played semi-pro baseball for a team in North Dakota. The money made from those games helped him pay his way to Oregon. That's an important point that you're going to want to remember. By the way, I also want to point out something here about the Oregon Ducks. Just as Lillard is arriving on campus, the first two black players in team history were departing, their successful college careers coming to an end. Bobby Robinson and Charles Williams were Oregon natives brought aboard by the previous coaching staff in 1927, and both players were featured at quarterback, likely making Oregon one of the first major schools to feature black players at the prominent position. It was a position Lillard played, too. Per conference rules at the time, Lillard, like all freshmen, couldn't begin his tenure on the varsity team. He had to play on the freshman team first. So that's where he spent the 1930 college season, and boy, did he turn heads there. Lillard's freshman exploits were documented by sports writers at the Eugene Guard. One of them highlighted his debut against rival Oregon State, 
whose players made it their mission to repeatedly pile onto Lillard with punishing pops and post-play extracurricular blows. Still, as the guard noted, Lillard, quote, wouldn't leave the game, even after he was deliberately flattened unconscious from an obvious roughing tactic. Joe recovered, came back fighting, and took another punk back almost to its original send-off. Lillard certainly faced those tactics before, and he most certainly would face them again. You are listening to the 6 Feet 60 Seconds Podcast. This is Episode 1, The Joe Lillard Story. By 1931, Lillard became a full-fledged starter on Oregon's varsity football team. His face even appeared in game programs that year. In his first game, a contest against fellow Pacific Coast Conference foe Idaho, Lillard was double and triple covered any time he got close to the football. It frustrated him. To calm Lillard, Spears benched him until the fourth quarter. Oregon was leading 2 to nothing, and on Lillard's very first play in that period, he ran the ball for 23 yards. On the very next play, he rented another 8 for a touchdown. One more 15-yard gain on a subsequent drive, and Lillard's day was done. Soon, his college career would be, too. Two days before the Ducks' next game, the conference's newly installed first commissioner informed the team Lillard needed to be ruled ineligible. The conference had proof he played for the Gilkerson Union Giants, an all-black barnstorming baseball team. But here's the thing. As Oregon coach Doc Spears told reporters at the time, quote, there are a lot of other players in the conference who have played semi-pro baseball. It was a very well-known fact among the member schools that players of all walks would play for semi-pro teams in their off-seasons and make a little cash on the side. Continued Spears, why not wait until there's information on them and then throw the whole bunch out at once instead of singling out Lillard? To Oregon's credit, the school at first stood behind the player and played him anyway in that next game. Against Washington, Lillard intercepted a pair of passes, boomed a pair of deep punts, and had a rushing touchdown. It was the very last time, however, he'd see the end zone as a collegiate. A couple days later, officials from the Pacific Coast Conference agreed to bar Lillard for the egregious charge of, quote, playing semi-pro baseball under an assumed name. The Eugene Guard reported that Lillard's half-brother, a man named Ben Johnson, played for the baseball team in North Dakota, and as Ben's little brother, Joe was certainly welcome to be part of it. So everyone around the team assumed his name was Joe Johnson. That means Lillard's college football career ended simply because he didn't correct his teammates on the barnstorming baseball team he was part of, that he and his half-brother had different last names. What a crime that was. Exactly one year later, Lillard found himself back in Chicago. There, at age 27, he began playing for the NFL's Chicago Cardinals, the Windy City's second-tier NFL team behind the vaunted Bears. The Cardinals were so awful at the time that they went 2-15-3 in 1932 and 1933. Still, Lillard was far and away their best player and was arguably the best player in the league. When he signed, Lillard became one of just a dozen black men to have strapped up for a professional football team. All of them played within a 13-year span, which began exactly 100 years ago. Lillard's first Cardinals coach, Jack Chevenge, was a noted bigot and had occasional clashes with the player who was his quarterback-slash-tailback-slash-defensive-back-slash-kicker. 
In part because of those clashes, in part because of a missed team meeting, and in part because of a nagging ankle issue, Lillard didn't play much late in the 1932 season. He only started five games that year, passing for 103 yards and rushing for 121. The next year, though, Paul Schischler came on as head coach, and he was not afraid to keep the ball in the hands of his dynamic playmaker. But an old problem reared its ugly head all throughout the 1933 season. Vicious racism and wackos in leather helmets who would taunt, sling racial epithets, throw post-play punches, send knees to the groin, and come up with any and every other dirty tactic they could think of to get inside of Lillard's head. It worked. Chicago's first three games that year were particularly bad. During the opener in Pittsburgh, Pirates linebacker, yes, before they were the Steelers, they were the Pirates, linebacker Tony Holmes squared off to fight with Lillard late in the game. Both were subsequently ejected and the Cardinals lost. The next week in Portsmouth, Ohio, a massive fight broke out during the game. It was so big that even fans spilled out of the stands and onto the field to take part. Portsmouth police had to come out to restore order. It's clear Lillard's presence alone led to some of the day's actions in the blue-collar mill town. He threw the touchdown pass that accounted for Chicago's lone score. Seven days later, just down the Ohio River in Cincinnati, Lillard was cold-clocked by Cincinnati Reds guard Les Kaywood a split second after Lillard made a field goal. That accounted for the game's only scoring. Much as he had proven before, Lillard did not cower after receiving the blindside blow. Instead, he returned a shot of his own, leading to yet another brawl and another ejection. That year, Lillard was one of just two black players in the NFL. Lyman Ray Kemp played for the Pirates, and he later remembered Lillard as, quote, an angry young man, one who players on the other teams knew what would set him off. With many blacks pleading for integration in the legally segregated United States at the time, some black writers saw Lillard's reticence to backing down from a fight as a problem. They believed it proved to whites that the races didn't need to bother trying to mix, that they would constantly be at war with one another. The Chicago defenders Al Monroe criticized Lillard for not turning the other cheek and acting in a more deferential way. Had Lillard operated in such a manner, Monroe and other black writers hypothesized that Perhaps it would speed up the day when the nation's pastime, baseball, might become permanently integrated. Remember, this was 1933, and at the time, Jack Roosevelt Robinson was still 14 years old and shattering records at John Moore High School in Pasadena, California. Perhaps it was Lillard's experiences that led Branch Rickey and others to implore Jackie Robinson in 1947 to exercise more level-headedness than a person ought to have to bear. But we should also ask, who's to say that Lillard's approach was wrong? After all, a man can only take so much abuse, so much unnecessary pain, so many stinging arrows from others before he reaches a breaking point. Consider also that Lillard grew up in Iowa at a time when a black man was brutally attacked and subsequently died because he played football. It was October 6, 1923, when Jack Trice, a black man originally from Ohio, was making his college debut for Iowa State. The game was at the University of Minnesota. On the second play of the game, Trice reportedly broke his collarbone. He stayed in to continue playing. On one play in the third quarter while attempting to make a tackle, Trice was rolled up by a blocker and then flattened by three opposing players who unnecessarily piled on top of him. 
Trice said he was okay after the play, but had trouble standing. He was sent to a local hospital. Two days later, he succumbed to his injuries, internal bleeding. Jack Trice was 21 years old. Joe Lillard had just turned 18. Who knows what impact that death had on him whenever he faced similarly overly aggressive and racist opponents. When Lillard put his fists up to prepare for a fight, he may very well have been bracing for a fight to the death. After the first three games in 1933, Lillard went on to finish the Cardinals' abysmal season as their leading scorer. He was also one of the NFL's passing leaders that year. Maybe it was the brawls. Maybe it was disgruntled owners and their sponsors. Maybe it was just flat-out pure racism. Whatever the reason, when Lillard took his final snaps in Chicago's game against the Boston football team on December 3, 1933, it marked the last time a black man played in the NFL until 1946 when the league was reintegrated by two of Jackie Robinson's UCLA teammates, Kenny Washington and Woody Strode. At the same time, in the All-America Football Conference, Paul Brown signed Bill Willis and Marion Motley to his franchise in Cleveland. After his NFL career ended, Lillard spent the next five years playing for the Chicago American Giants of the Negro Baseball Leagues and the Brown Bombers, a Harlem-based all-black semi-pro football team. In 64 career games with the Chicago American Giants, Lillard committed just three errors in the outfield. In 1978, he died in New York. Lillard was 73. There are some great resources out there with a few more tidbits on Lillard's life. Of note, Alan Levy's 2003 book, Tackling Jim Crow, Racial Segregation in Professional Football, and that's a great place to start. There's also Daniel Coyle's Sports Illustrated piece titled Invisible Men, also published in 2003. The Duck Downs blog, which tells of Oregon football from 1894 to 1994, is quite a strong reference, and so is the staff at Fish Duck, another Oregon football blog. Also, the newspaper of Mason City, Iowa, the Globe Gazette, is a good resource. This has been a 6 Feet 60 Seconds podcast with host Coley Harvey. Episode 1, The Joe Willard Story. If you like this podcast from Coley Harvey, be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're hearing this podcast. Also, be sure to visit coleyharvey.com for more.